As you could also probably tell, Cody is out this week on vacation, but we really are so blessed to have such a talented group up here, um, being able to step in and lead when needed, and it really is just such a blessing. And I am excited to be with y'all. We've known for, obviously, this has always been the week of the Southern Baptist uh, annual meeting, so Merrick knew he was being out, and he looked to fill the pulpit, but a lot of the people who he would use to fill the pulpit are also at the Southern Baptist Convention, so he asked me if I'd be willing, and I am headed to camp this week, as some of you may know, I leave out today at 2, so we would appreciate prayers for that, but if you were with us last week, you know that we started a series in the book of Proverbs, and I asked, in filling the pulpit, if it'd be okay if I jumped out of that this week, uh, just because if to let you in a little bit behind the curtain, whenever you're preaching, especially a series that you are not have not been walking through, there's a lot more work. Uh, you have to do a lot more background work. You have to learn a lot more of the setting and the context. And this just wasn't a great week for me to be able to dive into that. So I asked if he would be okay with me stepping out of the series and actually jumping into the series that we are doing right now as a student ministry for this summer. So we are walking through as our youth ministry in a series called The Twelve. And we have been walking in, I think I have a graphic, I need to give you the same disclaimer that I gave the students. There's a lot of gray hair in that picture. That's not accurate. Most of them probably passed or were killed before they reached old age, but it's a nice picture. It got the point of cross. So I appreciate how they did not put a halo on Judas, which is just an extra got to him there, but whatever it may be. But we've been walking through a series called The Twelve this summer in our student ministry. and In true student ministry fashion, I've got a game, so I need the boys to go to this side of the room, and the girls, I'm just kidding, that just always ends in them being mad at me because it's never their fault that they lose. No, of course not, it's mine, you know. If the girls win, I'm sexist. If the boys win, I'm sexist or prejudiced or whatever it may be, but really they're just not good at games. I tell them they can't all be winners. But, We have been walking through this series, and what we've sought to ask is, is why these 12? Jesus could have had any people to to start His church, to, to bring His new religion, to bring His gospel and His message to this world. He could have chose any people on the known earth, but He chose these 12. Why? What can we learn from these men? How can we learn from their mistakes? How can we follow the example that they set before us? And what we've been walking through this summer as a student ministry is looking at each of these individuals one by one and asking, all right, how can I be like him? How can I make the impact that he made? How How can I not do what he did that was a mistake or anything like that? And to catch you up to speed a little bit of where we've been, I want to give you a little bit of of background to the Twelve as a whole. If you look with me, I'm going to test your Bible drill knowledge this morning. We're all around the Gospels. We'll mainly be in the book of John if you just want to keep your finger there. But I do have the the words and the verses on the screen as we go. But we're starting in Luke 6. And Luke accounts the, the choosing of the apostles in this way. It says, In these days He went out to the mountain to pray, He being Jesus. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, 
Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. See, it says that Jesus went out and he went to the, a mountain to pray and he prayed all night. As Christ often did in his ministry, he would seclude himself to spend time in communion with the Father to, before big decisions, before other big events in his life. He devoted his time to prayer. And he comes off this mountain after spending all night in prayer and he, he, he gathers together all of his disciples, all of the people that have been following after him, have been learning from him. And it's from those 12 people it's from that group of people that he chose the twelve whom he called the apostles. And it gives a list. And honestly, the timing of this is pretty interesting. Right above this in Mark chapter 3, he's starting to be known in, in the known world. The religious leaders are starting to oppose him. He's starting to gain a following. And you have to ask the question, alright, why are you now, whenever your platform has been is the biggest as it has been, why are you pulling back from the masses and pouring into the twelve? Why from now on do the most intentional topics of teaching, are you teaching them? Why are you doing it this way? In Mark, it recounts this same story, but it gives us even more the task that he appoints to the twelve. In Mark 3, verse 14, it says this, And he appointed the twelve, of whom he also called the apostles, so that they might be with Him and that He might send them out to preach. See, there's two parts of this. He says, first, they might be with Him. They might come in. They might learn from Him. Sit under Him. Watch Him as He ministers. Watch Him as He loves the crowd. Watch Him as He rebukes the crowd. Watch Him and learn from who He is as a person. To be with Him. To sit under Him. But he says that's not just the end goal. The end goal is not an attaining of knowledge, but rather it is to be sent out. It says being sent out to preach. Being sent out to make His name known. Being sent out to start the church. To, to baptize. To, to, to drive out demons, as it says in the next verse. To perform miracles and to make His name known around the world. This is the twelve. These are the people whom He's called to make this happen. But it still doesn't answer the question as to why. Whenever I started this series with the student ministry, I asked them to name the twelve as they could. And you can quietly in your mind try to think if you can get all of them. You just read a list, so hopefully you do pretty well. But they did pretty okay. I think they got like six of the... They knew a lot of them. They didn't know that... There, a lot of names repeated, so they kind of we set them up for failure a little bit there. But why these men... I mean, we know from the Gospel accounts that they were, there was nothing special about them. They were not theologically trained. They were ordinary. A large sum of them were fishermen. There was a tax collector who basically pledged his allegiance to Rome. There was a zealot who basically pledged his allegiance against Rome. There was other just laymen, financial personnel. They were just, they were just men. None of them theologically trained. From what we know from most historians, most of them are pretty young. Majority of them under the age of 21. They were Galilean, which was kind of looked down upon that day. They weren't, they weren't true Israelites as the, the nation would see them. They were lower class. 
they were not the people who you or I would have chosen to be the, the face of your ministry, the face of your, your gospel proclamation, the face of your church, but He chooses them. Why? Why these twelve? I think Paul, as he, he's writing to the church of Corinth, he sheds light in, in how this is just God's mode throughout the New Testament and throughout the Bible as a whole. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, Paul is writing and reminding the Corinthians of this. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We see this this is the why. Why these twelve? Why such an ordinary bunch? And it's for that reason. They were ordinary. There was nothing special about them. This mimics what we see in the Old Testament when, when God has chosen Gideon as judge to lead his, his people against the, the nations invading. And he has this massive army that's still but a speck to the armies that are invading. But God says, your army's too big. So he gives stipulation into how to cut them. He says, send the ones that don't want to be here home. And the army size dwindles, but God says it's still too big. And he goes through another test to... Finally, he gets to the point where the army is about 300 men. And he says, now, now whenever I bring victory to my nation, it will be evident that it is because I am the true God. The same reason is why he chose the 12. There was nothing special about these men. They were ordinary men that used the gifts and the talents that the Lord gave them to proclaim his gospel. See, this is a a longer introduction to this message because I think often we elevate the twelve to something more than what they were. We look at their example in their life and we think, oh, if if I could only be that. If I could only have that that power that they had. But the truth of the matter is, there was nothing special about them. They had the same amount of spirit in them as we do today if we call ourselves believers. Sure, they got to see Christ firsthand, but but we get His Word in its entirety. Like we, We are not at a disadvantage as compared to them, but the Lord used them in a mighty way. Why? Because they were willing to be used. And we're looking at Andrew this morning. Andrew, maybe the most ordinary of the bunch. We don't see a lot about him, but yet he can still teach us so much about ourselves and how the Lord wants to use us. So as we dive into the life of Andrew this morning, let's pray together. Father, we love you. Father, we love that you use the ordinary that you use the insignificant, that you use the individual to make your name known. Lord, I pray that we realize that. The privilege and the responsibility that it is. Lord, I pray that we look to these apostles and learn from them. Lord, I pray that as we looked at Andrew specifically, 
we ask ourselves, how can I learn from His example to make Your name known to the nations? God, I pray that You speak through me. Use me as a vessel. Let them not be my words, but Your own. God, we love You and we praise You. In Christ's name, Amen. Like I mentioned, we'll be, we'll be discussing Andrew this morning. And again, if this was youth, I would get you to tell me everything you know about the Apostle Andrew. And with quick, smart aleck response, there's always a, his name starts with an A, which thank you, you're great at that. He was an apostle. I get that every week. He was an apostle. Good job. They try to think real quick if he wrote a book of the Bible. If they're right or wrong, if the book has his name on it, he wrote it. So they, they blurt that out and sometimes I get to correct them. They probably would have known, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, that they were Simon Peter's brother because we've already talked about Peter, so he, we knew he had a brother, so I believe in you guys. I won't put you on blast to talk about what you learned about last week and what we talked about John or James and all the other things as I normally do. But we're looking at Andrew, and honestly, we don't know a lot about him. He's mentioned a handful of times in Scripture, and most of the time, it's just a list. Every time his name is mentioned, he is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Apart After Acts, there is no word as to who he is or what became of him, but he still has something to teach us. And I think he is, he is extremely ordinary that we can relate with him. And this morning, as we jump in, I think the best place to start in learning about Andrew is seeing when he first met Christ. So if you are in John, look at John chapter 1, and looking at verse 35-39. through 39. And it says this, And the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. Now this is John the Baptist. He has started his ministry, he has started proclaiming who the Christ is and who he will be. They've already come to John the Baptist and asking, are you the Messiah? People, he has gained a following as we see even here that he has disciples himself. And we'll see that of these two, one of them is Andrew. And it says he's standing with two of his disciples. And in verse 36 it says, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned to them and said, What are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. So we get a, a draw and we'll see later on that Andrew is one of these two. Now the other one's not mentioned, so it's assumed that it's the writer of this account, which is John. And John never throughout his Gospel writes his own name because he realizes that it's not his name that needs the glory. It's Christ alone. So he normally just omits it. So it's John and Andrew here, and they're following after John the Baptist. See, they are seeking truth. They have learned that John the Baptist is a prophet. They have heard the stories of what he is doing. They've known that even the religious leaders have gone to him to hear what he has to say, so they are following him. They're in the wilderness. Whether they've taken off of work, whether they've gone on an off day, whatever it is, they are spending intentional time to be with him and to learn from him. And then we see this, this story take a change, and it's John the Baptist saying, look, there he is, the Lamb of God. This is the one whom you've been waiting for. This is the one who I've talked about, that I say I can't even untie his sandals. I am not worthy. This is the one. And immediately it says they leave John and they go 
to Jesus because they're seekers of truth. It says, he asked, what are you, what are you looking for? What do you want? And, and they said, Lord, we just want you. Where are you staying? Let us sit under you. Let us learn from you. And it says that it does. They went with them. And we see a glimpse already into the desire that Andrew had for Christ. The desire that he had to be in his presence, to learn from him, to hear from him. And then we see as this story continues on, his first response as he does hear from Christ. In verse 40, it picks up again and it says this, One of the two whom John, who heard John speak was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. But he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You, Simon, son of John, will be called Cephas, which means Peter. So, Andrew goes and spends time with Jesus. And then he says, immediately, I need to go tell my brother about this. I need to bring him to Christ. And he, he runs and he says, we have found him. Now, this Greek word found is, is, is so much more passionate than what our, our word found really is. Let me, let me paint the picture. You're 20 minutes late for work and you can't find your keys. You say you put them on the same hook or in the same spot every morning or whatever whenever you get home from work, but they're not there. And then it's mad dash, all right? You're late for school, whatever it may be. It's all hands on deck. You enroll your wife to start looking, and you, you bark at her because she is for sure the one who moved them. I know I put them right here. You get your kids to come down and, and start scrummaging through the couch or whatever it may be. You enlist the dog. And whoever finds the, the keys, you say, you get extra allotment of allowance this week. We've got to find these. And after minutes or whatever, what feels like hours of searching, you find them. And ecstatic as you've ever been, you said, we found it. Let's go. This is the, the emotion times 12 in Andrew's voice. We found him. Who we've been searching for. Who we've been... We've been listening to, to hear what he's like, to what he'll be. We found him. Come, Peter. Come and let me show you to him. Let's meet him. This is Andrew. A man who had a desire to, to meet and know Jesus. And a man who had a desire to make all the people around him know him as well. This is an example of a man that we should follow. And, and we'll see that Andrew does not play a major role from here on out. We know that Jesus had His inner circle, per se. It was Peter, James, and John. And these three got to see a part of Jesus that none of the other apostles got to see. They got to see Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration with His full glory on display. They got invited to the depths of the Garden of Gethsemane to pray for Jesus and to be with Him there. But Andrew's kind of an asterisk to this inner circle. He's this tag-along that sometimes gets to be a part and other times not. Like Andrew got to be a part of, of Jesus healing a demon-possessed man in Mark 1, and none of, the other disposal, the other, none of the other disciples got to see that apart from those four. Andrew got to be a part whenever Jesus was explaining to them what the end times would look like in Mark 13 and, and how they would see the signs that it was coming. See, Andrew was kind of this, this tag-along to this inner discipleship core. Always, whenever you see the list, he's either second or fourth because that's his, his rank amongst the group. Like He was in that close-knit group and he knew Jesus well. We'll see that from the other text we're going to look at this morning. 
But we see that he had a desire for Christ and that he was effective in the ministry that he lived. See, I think Andrew, above all else, can teach us one thing. We see this, that Andrew had the right heart to make him an effective minister of the Gospel. Jesus used him in a way like he didn't use the other ones. And it's because Andrew prioritized things in his life that we don't see the other apostles prioritizing off the get-go. And I think we can look to Andrew because my favorite part of Andrew is he's an unsung hero. Never, whenever you see Jesus and him communicating one-on-one, never is Andrew chastised. Andrew says the right things. Andrew does the right things. Now, don't get me wrong, he was not perfect. He was in the group as they all did dumb things, as they all messed up. But he lived a life where he was saying, I want to to make the gospel known the best way I can. And he succeeds in that. But it's because the priorities of his life were in a way that they should be. And I think this morning, I want to ask, are, are ours? Do we prioritize what he did? Do we live our life in a way to make the gospel known like he did? If God is in the business of using an ordinary man like Andrew, why wouldn't He want to use us? To be an impact to our community, our, our, our friend group, our family, our, our work, whatever it may be, why wouldn't He want to use us like He used Him? We're going to look at three things that Andrew prioritized this morning. And the first is this. Andrew prioritized individual people. We've seen this already, right? Like, he went and found Peter, his brother. And this was at cost to himself. Like, think, he knew the personality of his brother. He knew that he was always under his older brother's, like, shadow. Being the youngest, I can represent with this. Like, always, I am so-and-so's little brother, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. This is him. He, he understands, me bringing Peter to Jesus sets rank now between me and him. Peter was older. He, in their culture, he was to be the, the spokesman of those two because of his age. Andrew realized that, but he says, I prioritize you, Peter, in this. We see in the, the story of feeding of the 5,000, which we'll look at a little bit closer in a second, he is the one who brings the boy to Jesus. He is the one who finds him. But a story that, that I want to, an account that I want to draw to attention to start, and I think shows this so well, is in John chapter 12. Jesus is is ministering to a group of people here, and it it cuts, and it's a cut scene to this specific instance. In verse 20, it says this, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now they came to Philip for a reason. Philip was from Bethsaida, and that was a very Greek-influenced area. So he no doubt had a culture, he was known, it could probably be told that he had dealings with Greeks just in his life. So they came to him thinking that he could be the liaison. But we see Philip does something that's honestly pretty interesting in the next verse. In verse 22 it says, Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip together went and told Jesus. Now again, this account doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Philip was just as as much an apostle as Andrew was, but why didn't he feel like he could take this this group of Greeks to Jesus himself? Maybe he he thought, maybe this isn't the right protocol. Maybe he heard before Jesus say, I've not come to 
to the dogs of this world, but to the lost sheep of Israel. Maybe he's like, maybe he doesn't even want to deal with these guys. But he knew because of the reputation of the, the man that was with him, I know a guy who would be willing to at least know what we should do next. And that's Andrew. Like I said, every time we see him, he is focusing on the individual. He's seeing a person and not a, a mass. And this was even his reputation amongst the twelve. Like, he was known, this guy, this guy brings people to the feet of Christ. So, if they want to meet him, at least he'll know what to do. See, this was Andrew's evangelical method. I think so often in our lives, we think, I don't have the platform. I don't have the, the status, the popularity to be able to, to bring people to Christ as I should. But I think that's just folly in our minds because what I know as a minister, and what, if you spend time in church and hear people's testimonies over and over again, very rarely do people come to know the Lord because of a, a sermon they heard in a crowded setting. Often, it's the testimony of a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, someone who reached out to them whenever they were going through a hard season, someone who loved them whenever no one else around them did, someone who shared truth with them like no one else would. It's the individual that so often wins the individual. And yes, sermons can bring people to know the Lord. Like We know that to be true. But even people who come to hear the sermon, so often they come to a church. Why? Not because they saw some ad on Facebook. Yes, that does happen. But it's because someone individually invited them. See, this was the method that, that Andrew knew. We never see Andrew preach a message to the masses, but we see him looking and seeking out the individual so that he can bring them personally to Christ. And I'll tell you, I've seen this beautifully played out in my own life. Whenever I was in Ruston, I got the privilege of discipling a group of college guys. It was a guy named Dan, a guy named Danny, a guy named Rupert, a guy named Adam, and a guy named Sam. And we together met every Sunday afternoon, and we just kind of figured out life together. We would walk through God's Word, spend time, I poured into them the best that I could, and just held each other accountable. But whenever we started this group, I really didn't know any of them well. I'd kind of, it's those relationships where it's like, yeah, I know of you, but, but we aren't friends. So I started the group and I shared my testimony with them. And if you've heard my testimony, you know that I was born in the church culture. I was raised in the church. And, but ultimately, my, my life was not lived for Him. I was doing the things that was expected of me, that, that I knew to be right, but, but I wasn't doing it for the, for the right reasons. And I explained that to them. I explained that eventually the Lord convicted me. That He said, you do not have a relationship with me. You're simply declaring, Lord, Lord, but you have not surrendered your life to me. And I shared that with them, and it was months later that a sermon on that morning, uh, some Sunday morning, some random Sunday morning, our pastor kind of preached on that message. And I remember seeing Dan, tears in his eyes, go and talk to Merrick, who was the college pastor at that point. And Merrick pulls me over after the service ends, and he says, Braden, Dan wants to share something with you. And Dan said, Braden, you sharing your testimony, I have not gone to bed one night without thinking, is that me? He said, your words have hung on my heart for months. And this morning I finally realized, that's me. Obviously I was excited. Dan's like 6'12", so I gave him a hug and I came up to like his belly button. And I was so excited. And we had a group that afternoon, which was awesome. And I said, 
Dan, we started, and I said, Dan wants to share. And Dan started sharing what the Lord was doing in his life and, and sharing how the Lord was convicting him and showing him that it's more than just rituals. It's more than just coming to church. It's a relationship. And he said, I didn't have it, but I do now. And Dan finishes sharing his testimony and Sam speaks up and he says, man, that's me. Sam starts crying and he says, I want that. So in that room, hours after Dan, Dan, Sam gives his life to Christ. Dan goes back home and and sits with his, his roommates and his roommate Adam gives his life to Christ. And it wasn't because a sermon, it was because individuals were pouring into one another, one-on-one, sharing their story with one another. See, this was Andrew's method. This is what he sought to do. He said, will I ever get the opportunity to preach to the masses? No, maybe not, but if I reach one, then maybe they can make an impact. Most of you have probably never heard of a man named Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a no-name Sunday school teacher. He led a group of high school guys in Sunday school. But he said every year that it was going to be his mission to have an intentional one-on-one conversation with every guy in his class. And there was a guy in his class that year named Dwight. And Dwight was a menace to say the least, apparently. He was nervous about sharing with them. He wasn't well-spoken. He wasn't well-educated. But Edward was determined to have an individual conversation. So he went to where Dwight worked. He worked at a shoe store and he was stocking the back room and he said, Dwight, let me, let me tell you about how I came to know Christ. Let me share the gospel with you. And it said that in that meeting, in the back room of a shoe store, Dwight gave his life to Christ. We know him better as D.L. Moody. He brought the gospel all around Great Britain and Europe. He eventually came over to North America and shared the gospel there. So much so that there's the D.L. Moody Bible Institute that, that trains thousands of men and women to go and share the gospel. In D.L. Moody's life as an evangelist, he won multiple high-profile evangelists for the Lord. He won a guy named T.T. Studd who revolutionized mission work in Asia. He led a guy named Wilbur Chapman to the Lord who he himself became uh, an evangelist and started preaching to the masses. Through Wilbur Chapman, a man named Billy Sunday, the famous baseball player, came to know the Lord through one of his rallies. And Billy Sunday himself came and started being an evangelist, started preaching the gospel to the the nation around him. So much so that a guy named Mordecai Ham gave his life at a rally of Billy Sunday's. And and Mordecai Ham became uh, an evangelist as well. And there was a boy named Billy Frank who was invited to come to a Mordecai Ham rally one time, and he said, I will not go, but I hear that there's going to be people causing a ruckus, so I kind of want to see all heck break loose. And Billy Frank Graham gave his life to Christ that day. Through the faithfulness of a Sunday school teacher, generations later, one of the greatest evangelists that our nation has ever known came to know the Lord. See, this was Andrew's method. He brought Peter to the Lord, and Peter preached at Pentecost since 1,000 to Christ's name. Andrew got to be a part of that story. Friends, where do we neglect the individual? The person that Christ has put in our lives, in our workplace, in our friend group, 
in our circle, in our family, where do we think that I, I don't have an area of influence that's anything worth using? But we have one, at least. How can we use that individual? How can we make friendships so that we can share Christ with them? How can we, we love people in a way that we can share Christ with them? Where are we neglecting the individual? This is what Andrew prioritized. We see that he not only prioritizes that, he prioritizes, yes, the individual, but he also prioritizes the insignificant gift. Looking at the, the account of the, the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, it says that Jesus went across the sea and a group gathered around him. And in John chapter 6, it, it cuts to Jesus looking up in verse 4. It says, now the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand, and lifting up his eyes then, he saw a large crowd that was coming towards him. And Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Now, a little disclaimer, he reached out to Philip, because more than likely Philip was the one that was kind of in charge of the logistics. He was the spreadsheet guy, so he knew where they were going to stay, how they were going to eat, how they were going to get the food to feed them. Because, I mean, 12, 13 people is a decent-sized group. You can't just show up and say, hey, can we stay in your living room? You had to have somebody who handled that well. And that was Philip. And we see that Philip was already thinking about this because of, honestly, his quick response. It says, Philip answered him, 200 denarii. This is 80 days' wages. 80% of your yearly income. This would not be enough to give them even a little. Philip says it's impossible. Other accounts of this story says other disciples spoke up and said, let's send them on their own to eat, and then they can gather back together. But then we see again Andrew come to the story. Andrew pipes up in verse 8 and says this, one of his, one of his disciples, Andrew, again, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is this boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Again, I think this points back to him finding the individual. Him taking the time to find a small boy. Realizing that he had something to offer to bring. And he said, I don't know what Jesus can do with it, but if anybody can do something with it, it is him. In my home church of First Ruston, there is a, a saint named Miss Glover. And Miss Glover has rocked bed babies for what I'm sure is like 200 years, all right? She rocked me whenever I was young. She has rocked parents. She has rocked children. She has rocked grandchildren. Like, she has been serving in the First Baptist Rustin nursery for as long as I can remember. And she does it very, very well. She knows how to hold those babies and get them to go to sleep like no other. And I remember I was sitting in a seminary class after I left my home church to go to seminary, and I remember a professor of mine saying, see, often we at seminary want the, the, great, the great gift, the ability to preach to the masses, the ability to teach like no other, the ability to counsel and, and, and to hear people's words and know how to, to pour into them. And he says, and those gifts are great and dandy, but he says, the world needs nursery rockets. The church needs it. It is a service that cannot be neglected. He said there are so many aspects in a church that just humble service saying, this is where I can be and be used to God's name be glorified in it. 
because Ms. Glover gave up every Sunday to rock bed babies, parents could come to church and, and not, be, not be worried about who their kids with. They were rocked by Ms. Glover. They knew that she could do a good job. They could come into a service and not be distracted and be able to really hone in on what the, the Word was saying to them that day. So much so that they could go home and pour into their child what they had been taught and live a life to what they had been taught because of one woman's faithfulness. Like This is a story that we see throughout the church. And it's gifts like this that so often are even seen by us as insignificant. But they, they can be so impactful. Think about this situation. There was nothing honestly valuable into what this boy brought. It was a poor boy's breakfast. And honestly, think about the scoffing that happened maybe from the rest of the twelve as Andrew brought this. Like This is almost offensive how little it is. Like, hey, we've got a Twinkie to feed the masses. Ah, that'll go a long way. Everybody take a nibble. Think about the faith that Andrew had to go back and say, I will bring this. I will bring this to him because I realize it is not the size of the gift that matters, but it is the size of the God who is receiving it. So he brings this boy and he says, God, do with it what you will. And we see the story. We see that it's multiplied, that he feeds the masses to their brim, that they have leftovers of 12 baskets because Andrew found a boy, and yes, the boy was willing. But Andrew, Andrew was the one who set the scene for this miracle. And again, where do we neglect these things? What things have we deemed insignificant in our families where we don't think that it will really make a difference? Making church a priority every week, not something that we get to if it, just, if it just happens. Making a priority to have an intentional conversation with your kid or your student about what God's doing in their life that week. Starting every Sunday after church, taking prayer requests so that at least whenever your kids go home and go to sleep at night, they know that mom and dad are praying for me. Talking about what what are you reading in God's Word? What did you learn about in Sunday school? We often think that's so insignificant. What can God do? But it's setting the stage for a miracle to happen. This was the method of Andrew. He saw value in it. He prioritized it. He said, I will do whatever small task I can and step back and watch the Lord work. Friends, do we. And I'm speaking to myself here because so often it can... It can feel like we aren't making a difference. What we're doing is too small, so we, we let off the gas or we step back and say it's not worth it. But we do not know the miracles that are happening behind the scenes or what's to come. Do we stay steadfast in this? This was Andrew's method. He prioritized individual people. He prioritized insignificant gifts. And where I want to end this morning is, is honestly something that's the most incredible to me of it all. He prioritized insignificant service. Inconspicuous service, excuse me. We know nothing about Andrew past the, past the Pentecost. His name is not mentioned in, in the rest of New, the New Testament. But church history does shed some light on, on what he became and what he went on to do. It's not believed that he ever pastored or, or preached to the masses. It's believed that at some point he went north with the gospel as far as, 
Skydia, which is modern-day modern Russia, which coincidentally he is the, the patron saint of Russia, probably due to that fact. We knew that he lived his life going and declaring the gospel, and eventually he wound up in Greece, in a town called Achaia, which is just south of Athens. And the account of ultimately his death was played this way. He found a, a providential Roman governor, and he won his wife, the governor's wife, to Christ. And that infuriated the husband. He demanded that his wife recount Jesus, and whenever she said no, he sought to destroy Andrew because of what he'd done to her. So he finds him. He brings them in and he says, I will crucify you and kill you for what you've done. But he wanted to make the crucifixion more painful. So he didn't, he didn't crucify him on a cross like we, we see Christ crucified in that way. He, he crucified him on an X-shaped cross. And he didn't nail his arms and legs to, to, the, to the beams. Rather, he tied them there. So slowly, the muscles would give way. Slowly, he wouldn't be able to pull himself up to catch breath. Slowly, he would just suffocate. Days he would hang on this cross just waiting to breathe his last breath. And the story goes that all the while while he is hanging there, he is preaching, turn from your ways and follow Christ. Andrew got no great praise. He led no great massive church movement. He died a horrific death. But I think this is the life that he was, he was willing and happy to live. Whenever we teach our kids about the apostles, Andrew's probably not the one that first spits out of their mouth. He's probably not the one that they say, I want to be like him, that we do Bible studies about, that we, that we theme VBS around. He's probably not that guy. But he was fine with not being that guy. Andrew knew his brother was probably going to dominate the group. He brought him to Christ anyway. Andrew knew that he probably would never have this great name for himself, but he says, if Jesus' name is known, then that's all that matters. Church, is that awesome? Andrew was ordinary, like me and like you. But he changed the world with how he lived his life. Why can't we? Let's pray together. Lord, praise God for people like Andrew. The ordinary, the insignificant, the one who we often gleam and look over, but Lord, by His faithfulness, by His faithfulness, some of us are here today. Thousands came to know You. Through Him seeking the One. Lord, let us learn from Him. Father, show us the individual that, that we're neglecting. Show us the task or the service that we seem too insignificant. Show us where we're, we're wanting to make our own name known more so than Yours. Lord, reveal this to us. Show us where we're not prioritizing the things like Andrew did. Help us learn from Him. Jesus, thank You that You chose the ordinary, the foolish to bring Your Word to the world. Let us realize that. Let us be empowered by it.